TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here. On TuneIn, go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. Dr. Michael Marvin is the head of transplantation at Geisinger, and he is on the phone with us right now. Doc, thanks for joining us. How are you? My pleasure. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Now, first of all, tell me a little bit about uh, you know what goes on in Geisinger. I, I didn't know you had such an ambitious program down there. H- how often do you do transplants, and you know what are the popular organs that are transplanted? Well, we do liver and uh, kidney transplantation. Um, We have done 43 kidneys so far this year. We actually did five just this past weekend. Um, And it's interesting you bring up the topic of of the risk of drug drug using uh, potential donors and that four of the five transplants we did over the weekend were donors of that type. Now that, that, that brings up a question for me and, and it's kind of a, kind of a, a sad thing to say. Someone told me that right now the number one donor type are people dying of addiction. Is that true? It is a huge problem. It's a very sad uh, state of affairs that, uh, and it's a nationwide problem. Um, and yes, it's it's a it's an increasing um, cause of of death. Um, and it's one of the reasons why transplants have actually gone up over the last couple of years. They had been fairly steady nationwide for years, very slow, slow increases, um, if at all. And now, over the last couple of years, it's gone up significantly. And a, lot, a large part of that is because of, of donors that are um, you know, using drugs and overdose most of the time inadvertently and, and not on purpose. Yeah. Um, it's a big problem, but these are often very good quality donors and it allows the families to make some, some type of positive thing come out of a horrible event. Now, when we had the original question, um, I, I mentioned that I had been called on three occasions to be with uh, with family members that, uh, not my family members, but people that had called for support. Their loved ones had died of an overdose, and they just needed uh, help making the decision. And, it, it, and my recollection was that a, a young man who died of a heroin overdose, everything could be harvested except his liver. Does that sound right? No, actually, liver is harvested very frequently. And, and we don't like, I, I, you just used the term that we don't typically use, which is harvest. We usually call it recovery just because we think it's more respectful of the, uh, of the donor and the family. We call it an, an organ recovery or organ uh, procurement. Um, but you no, know, liver, liver, all organs are potentially usable in that setting as long as the quality otherwise is okay. And there's a lot of testing that we do on potential donors uh, in order to allow us to do this. Okay, now uh, s- someone uh, c- comes to your office and, and, and they're referred to you and they need a kidney transplant. Are you able to get a, uh, a kidney from anywhere in the country or does it have to be in our region? So, so the, the, the allocation of organs is a very complicated process, particularly for kidney, um, in that the... In 2012, the the list has changed the way the way it works, um, and that is that now um, waiting time is still important, but not as important as the time you're on dialysis. And so, 
there, the, the, there are, we want to get the best quality kidneys into the patients that will live the longest. And that was one of the most recent changes. Uh, and so in the past, prior to this change, there might be an 80-year-old patient on the list who would get a 20-year-old kidney. Um, and the thought was there were many patients that were outliving their kidney. Um, and we, the, the thought was is that it would be better to put those kidneys that would last the longest in the patients that would need them the longest. And so if you happen to get a perfect um, kidney for someone, let's say, who's young, they will get the best kidneys that are possible. Um, and some of that, and there's also uh, matching that is very important. The better the match, the more higher you are on the list for that particular kidney. So at any given point for any given donor, you might be at a different place on the list depending on the match. And it also depends on how what we call sensitized. Patients develop antibodies from either pregnancies or blood transfusions or even infections and say so that they develop antibodies to the general population and that can also change where you are on the list. So it's a very complicated process. The typical allocation is what we call local first, which would involve eastern Pennsylvania, a little bit of New Jersey um, for the most part, and then if after that it would go to a regional, which would include the rest of Pennsylvania, and then Delaware, Maryland, uh, D.C., uh, New Jersey. And so it's a very complicated process, but for kidney, national sharing actually happens more frequently. We just uh, recently received an organ from uh, from Washington State uh, because it was a perfect match for a patient um, and so we were able to get that organ. So it really depends. Now, I, I, I'm, I, on my license, I'm, I'm an organ donor, okay? And I think that's, a, that's something that everybody should really consider. But now let me use your term and ask you, uh, in that recovery process, what can be recovered if I'm an organ donor? So it all depends on the history of the donor and the donor's stability. So it, so typically, a heart, two lungs, a liver. If it's a very good quality organ, sometimes the, the donor, sometimes the liver can actually be split, and one piece go to a baby and another piece go to an adult. So potentially there's two there. Then you have the pancreas that can go, the intestine, two kidneys. So they typically say one, in, one donor can give you eight organs, but it can be if in the best quality donors, that's really nine. Plus also now there's hand, face, uterus, um, there are penile transplants being done. There, I mean, there are a lot of different potential life-saving and life-enhancing organs that can be donated from any particular donor. Uh, and uh, so, and I wouldn't, and there are many patients that say, oh, they wouldn't want my organs, I'm, you know, I drank too much, or I have diabetes, or, um, you know, I smoked. And in reality, every organ specialist that makes decisions about whether to accept a, a, a potential organ from a donor evaluates the donor per specific to their needs. And so, yes, someone who, let's say, may be an alcoholic and the liver might be cirrhotic could still donate a kidney um, and can still donate lungs and a heart. It all depends. 
Okay, now, you brought up the subject that really sparked this discussion, and, and, and one of the original questions we had is, well, I understand, Frank, that uh, Johns Hopkins University is doing uh, penile transplants, uh, primarily for uh, American military that have been seriously injured, but could also be involved in transgender operations. My question, the question to me, which I now ask to you is, if you are an organ donor, is everything automatically up for grabs, so to speak, and what if somebody doesn't want to get that specific in their donation is there I, I don't even know how to ask that I mean can you restrict what is taken yes yes the donor the donor the donor gets to decide what organs are available and what organs are, are they're willing to take now sometimes if the donor hasn't designated a wish either on the license or online which is actually a, more, a better way to do it um, if you can every uh, state has an online version where you can sign up to be an organ donor online and that's a very good way of doing things um, you can also do it of course at the license bureau but the typical signing up for organ donation only includes the organs, meaning heart, lung, liver, kidney, pancreas, intestine. And uh, it's not uncommon for a donor family to say, well, you know what, yes, uh, he'd want to donate his heart and lungs, but he would, would not want to donate the liver for whatever reason. And we would respect the, those, those wishes. When it comes to donating other uh, what we call vascularized composite allografts, which are VCAs, which are the hands, the face, the um, the legs, potentially not in this country very frequently, but um, uterus, penis, like those options are completely separate and a totally separate consent. Now, forgive me if these are, are, are silly questions, but they're questions that came in, and that is, if someone was willing to, to do a, a, a penis don donation, does that mean that they would continue to reproduce in some strange way? Well, remember, the, the, the reproductive capability comes from the, the testes. You need semen, you need uh, to, to reproduce. It's not just the penis itself. So uh, that's a very complicated uh, process, and I have not been part of that team. I've, I've been very integrally involved with, ha with, uh, face with hand transplants and limb transplants, upper limb transplants, when I was in Louisville um, in my prior position. Uh, but uh, the other, uh, the penile transplants, uterine transplants, face transplants are a little out of my area of expertise, but um, if the problem with the the need for a penile transplant is for uh, is for reproduction, it all depends on the status of the testes, and and that's a little bit above my knowledge base. Okay, and then the other question, and and we've kind of talked a, a little bit about this. If if you are waiting for a transplant and the donor has died of addiction, is the recipient is the potential recipient advised of that and and yes. and why? Yes. Well, because being an active drug user puts the patient in a category called increased risk. And what we talk talk about increased risk, it's increased risk for hepatitis B, hepatitis C and HIV. And so that is a, it is mandatory that any donor categorized at increased risk will be, in, the recipient has to actually agree to that in advance um, in order to even show up on the list. So there's a button we select when we list, put someone on the list that 
specifically says, is the recipient willing to accept an increased risk donor? And so just some of the things that go into increased risk, it's not just IV drug users, it's men who have had sex with men, persons with hemophilia, I'm actually reading directly from the, from the list, uh, a sex partner who's uh, with a commercial sex worker or, some, or a commercial sex worker or someone who's had sex with a commercial sex worker, blood product exposure, so recent um, transfusions, but also incarceration. So it's not infrequent we get donors who were in prison for varying time points in the past, and they're considered increased risk. What's really important to know about this is that the way we test for hepatitis C, HIV, and hepatitis B is dramatically better than what we did in the past. I'm sure the vast majority of the people listening to your program right now have had chickenpox in the past. So if we check the virus, the antibody to chickenpox in their blood, it would be positive. But very few of them actually probably have chickenpox in their blood itself. So they have an antibody, but they don't have the virus. And so we do testing. In the past, the testing used to just look for antibodies. And it takes between, let's say, six to ten weeks to develop an antibody. So if someone was exposed yesterday and they become an organ donor, they could potentially have the virus in their blood and we don't know. Now we actually test for the virus itself. And that's the main difference that has made this so much safer. So now when you talk about um, looking for hepatitis C, HIV, and hepatitis B, we're able to detect the virus in the blood and that happens within three to seven days. Doc, what, what is the youngest patient that you have done a transplant on? Uh, you, we, we do liver transplants in babies. Babies? Yes, uh, not here at Geisinger, um, but when I was training at Columbia, we had a very large um, pediatric liver transplant program. So it's not uncommon for babies, you know, six to eight weeks old that wind up needing a, a liver transplant. Um, so then they, they're the ones that typically take a piece of a liver from a parent or a relative or a, a deceased donor. Wow. Doc, uh, you're a wealth of information. I, I have one question that maybe kind of doesn't come under the, the typical category category of organ donation, but maybe I, w- I was thinking about our interview here and I'm wondering if I, if I wanted to be a bone marrow donor, um, I can do that before I'm deceased, right? And h- how, how would that help? Well, bone marrow donation is a very different process. Um, it's anybody can do that for the most part if they're healthy. Obviously, they can't have a cancer. Um, but the bone marrow, uh, that goes is, is through the hematology and oncology uh, division of a hospital. I'm not an expert on that, but I know I actually donated uh, to a, a, a potential uh, child that had leukemia at one point. I offered. It wasn't a match. Um, but um, that can be done, and it's a separate thing and it's a very it, it's it is truly a life-saving um endeavor to do for those with leukemia so uh, so if i if i just wanted to go in and be a a bone marrow uh, donor does that mean that somewhere in in this country i i could potentially save a child's life yes okay you just convinced me okay doc uh is there any any information that you can give us you want us to, to contact geisinger or or your office or anything if people want information 
Well, if people would like information, uh, absolutely. We're, we're doing some innovative things with the hepatitis C donors um, that aren't done in very many programs around the country. Um, we've done 20 transplants just in the last year uh, with kidneys from donors that have been exposed to hepatitis C. Um, and it's one of the things that are enabling our patients to get transplanted a little more rapidly than they might at other places. Um, we're looking forward, because we have uh, the Geisinger Health Plan as well as part of our uh, uh, our system, we're able to do some innovative things. Um, and when you mentioned Johns Hopkins, I thought you were going to talk about they, they actually have a program where they're using organ donors that actually have hepatitis C in their blood, and their recipients are getting hepatitis C um, knowingly, but they've all been treated and they've been successfully treated, so now they have a great new organ, and they also have cleared their hepatitis C. Um, and so that is something that we're looking to start very soon. So we're trying to grow our program and take uh, the best care of, of patients in this region because many people choose to live in the central Pennsylvania region because they don't really want to go to a big city if they don't have to, and, and we're able to provide that care right here at Geisinger. Dr. Michael Marvin, thank you so much for joining us. Have a good weekend, sir. Thank you. You too. Appreciate All right. Dr. Michael Marvin, head of transplantation at Geisinger. Will Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening.